You can be the bad guy seeking to divide, or you can be the guy who's just so self-righteous and so great and everything's got to be about you. Both divide. Neither has place in the body of Christ. Verse 25, and I love his patience, but Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. Uh, Cut out the it is, because this is emphatic in the language, but not this way with you. It is not to be this way with you. He says, the one who's greatest among you must become like the youngest. And the leader, like the servant. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. And He had just done it. Remember? John 13 tells us, while they were all reclining at the table, Jesus got up laid aside his robe, girded himself in a towel, got a basin, and went apostle to apostle washing their dirty, stinking feet. And he gets to Peter, and Peter says, Not my feet! Jesus says, You need this, Peter. Trust me, I've seen your feet. (laughs) No, he didn't say that. (laughs) He said, Peter, unless, unless I do this, you have no part of me. And Peter goes, oh, oh, well, that's the deal. Baptize me. <laughs> he says, wash my hand and my hands as well. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're, you're good. You're good. He washes their feet. Jesus has every right to say, I am among you as the one who serves. Because he just had. He shows them. He doesn't just tell them what to do. He shows them how to do it. By the way, that, that Greek word benefactor, he says, Those who have authority over them are called benefactors. It's the Greek word euergetes. And euergetes is an honorary title. The euergetes was a person who was was given a a special honorarium because they had done some service for their country. You know, it would be like the Kiwanis Club Award. You know, nothing against the Kiwanis, but it's it's a a special award. Hey, we just wanted to recognize you for meritorious service and and valor above and beyond the pale. It's it's the big thing that they hung on the lion in the Wizard of Oz, you know, Uergetes. That's what it is. Jesus says that's the way they do it in the Gentile world. What's he talking about? It's all about credit. It's all about recognition for services rendered. Summer of 1980. I worked my flip-flops off to get the best camper award. We had best male camper, we had best female camper. I was going for best male camper, to be clear about that. I was. Figured it was my best shot, you know. The best camper award, you got to sit at the head table on the, the Friday night hot dog feast. What's better? Head table, you got to be served. You wore a paper crown with like pine cones and pine needles that were glued on by the arts and crafts nerds. You know, they took care of that. You can wear that. You got a a stick for your scepter. You were best camper. Best camper award. I wanted it for years. It was cool. And I got word Friday morning. You're going to be the best camper. Yes. (laughs) And then I'm walking down the hill toward the dining hall about 4 o'clock in the afternoon before all the proceedings and the festivities taking place. And there was a gathering there in front of the dining hall, 10, 12 people. I saw the director of the camp and a couple of counselors were there, um, a handful of students. And they handed a student a plaque 
And they bowed their heads and they prayed and that was it. And I'm like, what's, what's, what's going on? Well, they had another award, the most spiritual award. And that's what he got. And it was very low key. And I stood, I, I'll never forget standing there going, that's the award I wanted. Best camper's stupid. <laughs> Gotta wear a paper hat and hold a stick and eat hot dogs? Come on! You know? Christians are called not to be recognized, but to be like Jesus. That's, that's the whole point. That's what God desires. That's what Jesus came to show us. John 13, 15, He said, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who, who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Our greatness will never exceed that of Jesus. Ever. It's impossible. It is enough that we are like him. But to be like Jesus requires zero recognition. It requires no praise. That's not why we're in this. We don't do what we do in hopes that perhaps, you know, our name will be on the church memorial wall. We don't give what we give so that we can, you know, have our name on the memorial carpet. We do what we do so that we can be like Jesus. And so we do it quietly. Jesus makes this point. But but then He says, and again, the grace of Jesus, verse 28, You are those who have stood by Me in My trials. And just as My Father has granted Me a kingdom, I grant you that you may sit, you may eat and drink at My table in My kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Wow! What a remarkable thing! Revelation 21.14 tells us in the New Jerusalem, this is beyond the Millennial Kingdom. You know there's more than the Kingdom coming? You know that? That the Bible talks about in Revelation 20, a thousand year reign of Christ on earth, but then you get to Revelation 22 and God ain't even getting started. The New Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, and on into eternity we go. And on the wall of New Jerusalem, Revelation 21.14 says, there were twelve foundation stones, and on them the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Wow. You don't do this for recognition, guys. All the while, Jesus secretly is having their names prepared to be engraved. You know, That's what He does. Don't do this to be recognized. Do it out of humility. Do it from a servant heart. And when you do, by the way, i got a surprise for you. And there on New Jerusalem, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. I don't know if it's going to say the son of Alphaeus. Not sure about that. Simon, Judas, the son of James. And I think, number 12, Paul. Not Matthias. Because he's the one they voted in by lot. So I think it's going to be Paul. We'll see. But what is Jesus saying here? Why does He go suddenly from humility to great authority? Jumping from one to the next. I think He's saying you're going to be in positions of great authority and the only way it's going to work is if you serve like Me. The only way you're going to be able to handle your positions then is if you learn what a servant's heart is now. He is not saying, serve now and you'll be great later. 
What Jesus is saying here is in God's view, the servant is already great. That that is the place of greatness. The humble servant, God looks upon that person and says, Wow, that's greatness. And again, the best measure of that is Jesus. God become man, born in a, in a little village, in a small oppressed country, of unremarkable, blue-collar, working-class parents, a complete unknown until the age of 30. And then an itinerant rabbi for three years until he was crucified with criminals and they thought he was finished. Boy, when you put Jesus' life in, in that kind of description, doesn't really sound like much, does it? And yet we know He has changed the world. In fact, Peter writes, 1 Peter 1.20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Peter wrote that. Peter gets it. I love reading Peter's letters after looking at Peter's life, because it's obvious the guy matured at some point. And it's obvious he still had some flaws to work out. Simon Peter. Simon Peter. Peter means pebble. Remember, Jesus renamed him. His name was Shimon. Hebrew, Simon, Shimon. Jesus renamed him Peter, Rocky. Little pebble. Not big rock, that'd be Petra, but he was Petros, Rocky. That's a cool name. His Hebrew name, Shimon, is literally desert sand. Or Sandy. So, Jesus renamed Sandy, Rocky. He went from sand to rock. Are you following with me, Deb? Are you with me on this? Why are you telling us this, Rick? Because suddenly, in verse 31, Jesus reverts to Sandy. Shimon, Shimon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go to both prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Rocky, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Satan has demanded to sift you, Sandy. Satan is a sifter. He doesn't go after Peter because of what Peter was going to do. Satan didn't know that. Remember, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know what's about to happen. He doesn't know who's going to pull off what, but he does see in Peter some amazing potential. He does see in Peter a possible threat. And so he says, I want to sift this one. Satan is a sifter. He goes after sandy folk. He goes after people who are a little bit loose, you know, kind of shift from one thought to another who aren't really firm in where they stand, who aren't absolute in what they believe, who who jump out there, who like Peter so often does, blurt, you know, he, he goes after those who are sandy. But it was Jesus who changed Peter's name from Sandy to Rocky because sand has the potential to become hard, tough. 
strong. Sandstone. Well, how does sand become sandstone? Well, it takes pressure. It takes heat. And it takes time. And apply that pressure. Turn up the heat. And over time, even those who are a little shifting in, in their lives can start to solidify in their faith. Satan says, I want to sift him. Well, what Satan means for sifting, God uses for solidifying. Satan puts on the pressure and God watches and lets it go on just long enough so that the sand hardens into the stone, the rock. And then he pulls Satan away. 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 6, Peter said, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What was the one thing, the one thing that made Peter's faith solid? And it's in the passage we just read. Jesus prayed for him. Remarkable. Satan has demanded to sift you, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And his faith didn't fail. Faltered a bit. He got a little wobbly. He certainly was hopeless. But had his faith failed, he would have been hung on the tree next to Judas. His faith didn't fail. Because Jesus prayed for him. Peter, you're going to fall apart, man, like shifting sand. But I've prayed for you that your faith won't get blown away. And when this is over, when you turn, when you repent, strengthen your brothers. Because the best person to offer strength to a brother or a sister in Christ is someone who has been through the fire. Someone who has been in that hopeless place. Someone who has been hanging on simply by the prayers of Jesus. Wouldn't it be great to know Jesus was praying for you all the time? Occasionally, I, I get a real blessing. Occasionally, someone will come up and say, Hey, Rick, I'm, I'm praying for you. And I welcome that. I need it. But the thought struck me earlier this week. Jesus is always praying for me. Was it weird tonight? We're, we're singing worship. We got down to the last song and I started to sing, Jesus is praying for you. He is. The Bible says, Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? You may ask me for prayer and I may forget to pray for you. You may have brothers and sisters who who you ask for prayer and they may let it slide. Jesus never stops. His role right now in heaven is to intercede on behalf of the saints. He's saying, Lord, Steve has this situation going on in his life. He doesn't know it's coming. I know it's coming. Let's take care of Steve. He's praying for you. He says, Debbie, I know where your heart is. He says, Lord... Look at what our daughter has gone through. And let's take care of her. He is interceding on behalf of the saints constantly. This is what Jesus does. And it is one of the most remarkable truths of Christianity that if we could hang on to, I don't think we'd be upset by anything. 
I don't think anything would stress us out. Anything would worry us. Anything would be cause for alarm. We would just turn around and say, well, Jesus is praying for me. Can you think of anyone better? Less? I love less, but I would much rather have Jesus praying for me. No offense. Immediate access. Well, doesn't less have immediate access? Yes, through Jesus. Who's already praying? And His prayers are constant for you. Mark, is that remarkable? I mean, remarkable? Remarkable. I was looking at Mark. Funny. That's good. Incredible stuff. He's praying for us. And He said to them, When I sent you out without money belts and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And He said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that that this which is written must be fulfilled in Me. Quote, and He was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to Me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, here are two swords. And He said to them, it is enough. When I sent you out before, it was easy. Remember that? I sent you and I said, don't take anything. And they all go, yeah, it was good. We were casting out demons. We came back to you, Jesus, and it was, it was awesome. And Jesus says, now it's going to get tough. It's not going to be like it was before. You're going to face a hostile, a hateful world. Why are they so hostile? Jesus says you got to be prepared. Why, Lord? you got to be practical and prudent. You need to think this stuff through. You need to be ready. Why is it going to get so bad, Jesus? Because Jesus was to be numbered with the transgressors. What does that mean? It's something the world still does not understand. This whole idea of the perfect man sacrificed for me is offensive. Now think about this. When I say to you, let's say you're a non-believer. You don't believe in Jesus. You don't really believe you have a need for Jesus. You've lived a pretty good life. And I say to you, Jesus died for you. What does that tell you? You're bad enough someone had to die for you. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered, we might say, for the transgressors. He was the only one who could do it. You're not good enough. That's what the message says right up front. You're just not good enough. Who are you to come along telling me that? I pay my taxes mostly. I'm a good guy. Yeah, but but Jesus died for you. And the very fact that Jesus had to die for you draws out your spots and your flaws and your error and your failure and your sin. And that's offensive. And Jesus says, you're not just going out to cast out demons like before. You're not just going out to proclaim the kingdom is coming. That's all a great message. You're going out to proclaim the gospel, which is Jesus died for you to save you from your sin. Remember with the transgressors, boys. So now with that message, you go out, you've got to be prepared. You've got to be ready to go. John 15, 18, Jesus said, on that same night, He said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because 
You are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. You see how the words of Jesus are so interrelated on that night. Earlier he had said, a slave is not above his master. And so if I serve you, you should serve each other like I served you. And now he says again, remember what I said? A slave is not above his master. Guess what? If they hate me, they're going to hate you. And that's how it works. However someone relates to Jesus, that is how they will relate to his followers. Understand? However someone views Jesus, that's how they're going to view you if you're a follower of Jesus. If they love Jesus, they're going to love you. Don't you find that to be true? You're on an airport tra- in an air- airport traveling somewhere, you run into someone, find out they're a Christian, and it's like old home week. <laughs> right? But if someone finds out, as has happened to me on, a, on an airplane that I'm a pastor, it's amazing how quickly they will shut up. I've learned that's the one thing I can say if I don't want to be bothered. <laughs> what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a pastor. And I have a degree in psychology. (laughs) Shuts them up real fast. Is Jesus really telling them to buy a sword? That's an interesting thought. Jesus says, whoever has no sword, sell your coat and buy one. And they say, look, there are two swords. And he said, it's enough. And Peter obviously thought it was sword carrying time because at this point on, Peter's packing lead. Alright? Look at verse 39. He came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And we arrived at the place. Luke doesn't even say Gethsemane. All the other gospel writers say Gethsemane. Got Shimon, the place of the olive press. That place where Jesus is going to be pressed and squeezed as he prays. But it's the place. They all knew of the place. This was the spot. This was Jesus' spot on the Mount of Olives where he liked to go. Everyone knew it. So did Judas. Well, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, Yet not my will, but yours be done. And this is not one of the four cups of the Passover. This is a different cup altogether. This is the cup of wrath. The cup that Jesus says, I don't want to drink this. I will if you tell me. I don't want to. Psalm 75 verse 8 says, A cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed. He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. And Jesus knew He was about to become, don't miss this, He was about to become all the wicked of the earth. That He would take all of that filth, all of that ugliness, all of that spite and bitterness and hatefulness and brutality and immorality. I mean, start thinking about the sin and the wickedness of the world. All was going to be dumped onto the shoulders of Jesus. He would wear that stuff and He would drink the wrath of God to the dregs. That stuff at the bottom of the wine glass. He would drink the whole thing all the way to its bitter end on the cross. 
Father, let this cup pass from me. Yet, and it is the greatest statement of faith in history, in eternity, not as I will, but as You will. Your will be done. In verse 43, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Why? Verse 44, Being in agony... He was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Luke's the only one to tell us that. And said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Dr. Luke actually gives us two medically profound insights right here. He says, first of all, their sorrow made them sleepy. It does, doesn't it? Depression makes us want to sleep. When I'm down, I don't want to get up. When it's mid-winter in Washington, (laughs) and it hasn't rained, and it hasn't snowed, and it hasn't the sun hasn't come out, nothing, it's just gray, and you can't even see ten feet out your front door because it's just gray. And then you know you know the days and then the fog rolls in on North Whidbey Island. You can't even see your... You just want to stay in bed. And on a serious note, when life is hard, I'd just rather sleep it off. You know? And that is one of the big issues for those who struggle with suffering. Maybe you do suffer from depression. And all you want to do is stay in bed. All you want to do is sleep. And that's what was going on. It was enough. It was a heavy night. The teaching of Jesus had never been more heavy. The apostles sensing in their spirit something is very, very wrong. Something awful seems to be about to happen. Jesus' demeanor, everything has them so weighted down. And Luke says they were sleeping from sorrow. All the other writers say they were sleeping. Only Luke says from sorrow. And he tags it. Okay, well... I get it. Yeah, when I'm depressed, I want to sleep. What's the answer? Pray. Jesus wasn't sleepy from sorrow. Actually, Jesus' sorrow made him bleed. That's the other medical insight we get. Hematodrosis. Actual thing, we've talked about this, where the capillaries in extreme, extreme stress, extreme passion, intense prayer as Jesus was in the capillaries burst under the skin the tiny blood vessels they begin to pour through the sweat glands and this results best case scenario if you have hematidrosis you get into shock worst case scenario and most often you die a person with this goes into shock and they die no wonder an angel was dispatched to care for Jesus because he could not die in the garden He had to go to the cross. In a moment of excruciating grace, God tended to Jesus so that Jesus could suffer on the cross. And that puts a totally different understanding of what happened over that 12-hour, 18-hour period. What had Jesus said to the sorrowful sleeping ones? He said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He said it twice according to Luke. 
Three times. Matthew and Mark say he, he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He goes away and he prays and he comes back. And they're sleeping in sorrow and he wakes them up. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he goes away. And then he comes back. He does it three times. Pray against temptation. Pray against temptation. Let me ask you this question. Have you been praying and wondering why God's not answering you? Have you ever been in that place where you say, I pray... Okay, I just talked to a friend. None of you doesn't go to this church. I talked to a friend just last week about a, a horrendous situation he's going through. And I said, have you just... I mean, have you just taken it to Jesus? And he said, I've been taking it to Jesus for years, and I'm not hearing anything. Nothing happens when I pray. And I would say to you, are you so sure? Really? I mean, do you know this to be true? How many of us know every time a temptation in our lives has been averted? How often do you know when some tragedy has been blocked from your day? I think we're going to get to a point. I mean, does the Lord apprise me of every single enticement that He's deflected? Talk about going into shock. I think we will go into shock when we see all of the things that God did in response and answer to prayer that we never heard about. We didn't know about. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. He gives you the way out. He always provides that. And as we sing, the way out is Jesus. I'll tell you what, if you are praying and you're not getting any answer, your answer is to sink deeper into His presence. To pray more. To spend more time with Him and to ask Him just to increase your faith for whatever's going on in your life. Nowhere is the Lord required to let me know when He's delivered me from temptation. I'm sorry, Lord, that was in the contract. You're not keeping up your end of the bargain. It's not there. Now, Jeremiah 33, verse 3, the Lord says, Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. And that tells me there's a whole lot of great and mighty things that I just don't know. And so I pray against temptation, knowing that He will keep me from temptation, whether or not I am aware of it. You just keep praying. Don't sink into depressed despair and sleep. Stay awake and pray. Verse 47. (laughs) While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? It's a little weird for us, but it was customary. It was absolutely uh, an honorable thing, especially to greet a rabbi with a kiss. What's interesting about this is Judas just goes over the top. The Greek word is philema there, where we get philios, brotherly love. It means brotherly or fraternal kiss. But it's in the aorist active verb tense, which means Judas was just kissing him. Kiss, 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 kiss. 
Oh, Master! Kiss, 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 kiss. Jesus is like, Judas, what's up? My translation. (laughs) Judas, would you betray me this way? Are you kidding me? Jesus calls him on it. He's going totally over the top because for Judas it was a sign, obviously, for them to arrest Jesus. But it reminds me that betrayal often comes sugar-coated. Verse 49. When those who were around Him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, John tells us it was Peter. (laughs) I love that. Remember, John's also the one who tells us when they raced to the grave, John got there first. He's always pointing things out like this. Oh, and it was Peter who had that sword, by the way. Just in case anybody didn't know. One of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear, but Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this! Okay. You told us to buy a sword. Didn't you say buy a sword back in verse 38? And he did. He had. Whoever doesn't have, you know, go buy a sword. You're going to need one. Back in verse 38, look at it. When he says, when they say, look, here are two swords, he said to them, it is enough. He wasn't saying, good, two swords will hold off the entire Roman garrison. That's perfect. That's what we need. No. He was saying, enough. Come on, guys. It's enough. Enough of that talk. We might say, seriously? (laughs) We got two swords, Jesus. Jesus, He was talking about preparation of mind and spirit. And here, He shuts Peter down. Here we see Jesus' intention. Stop! Put away your sword. This is not the way it's going to go down. Knock it off. Not the guy's ear. (laughs) Knock it off, Peter. And so, verse 51 continues. I love this. Luke, again, the only one to tell us this. Dr. Luke says, He touched his ear and healed him. That's the last miracle of Jesus before He dies. He touches his ear and heals him. I read that today and I thought, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. (laughs) I got one. Right here. Got an ear. John not only tells us that it was Peter swinging the sword, and we're told that he he cut cut off his right ear. Okay, His right ear. So if you're right-handed and you're facing him and you're swinging a sword, that means one of two possibilities. Either he was ducking and you're coming across sideways and you lop off the ear, or he had turned and was running away. (laughs) You know, and Peter's chasing him down. You know, this little threatening servant. Go get him, Pete! (laughs) And he, he heals this guy's ear. John also tells us in John 18, verse 10, the name of the high priest slave. Malchus. Why does John tell us his name is Malchus? Now, I don't have any proof of this, but I think it's interesting that 60 years after this happened, when John was writing his Gospel, John remembers the name of Malchus and puts it in the Gospel purposefully. Peter lopped off Malchus's right ear and Jesus healed it. Why would John say that? Maybe Malchus was part of the first century church. I like to think he was. 
that he who had an ear heard (laughs) what the Spirit was saying. Maybe he did hear and became an early believer in the church. And perhaps maybe what we can take from this is that the sword is not for cutting off the ear, but the sword, the sword is to be heard. And that's kind of the whole point. Well, verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. We've covered several hours, roughly 12 hours or so, from early morning when all the people came out to hear Jesus to late in the night. We've gone from morning to darkness. And we're going to leave it here for now tonight. But I want to remind you just of one thing. It's what Paul wrote in Colossians 1 verse 13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Lord, it seems odd leaving the story at this point in the middle of the, of the passion and the beginning of the arrest of Jesus. And Father, this, this story, I want to say it never gets old, but it is so much more than that. This story never ceases uh, to stir the heart. And I pray, Lord, just over the next week or so, next week and a half as we come to the, to the end of this book and the end of, the, of this Gospel record, I pray that You would stir our hearts. I pray, Lord Jesus, You would stir the heart of every person who walks through that door. That when we recognize, Lord Jesus, You were numbered with the transgressors. You were numbered among us. You were counted a sinner for my sake. That You took my worst on Yourself. And Lord, my worst would have been enough. But You did it for the sins of the whole world. Past, present, and future. That's passion, Lord. Thank You doesn't even come close. Our gratitude, not even near. Our deepest and most heartfelt worship cannot approach the wonder of Your sacrifice on that Passover. But we praise You anyway. We thank You for becoming the Lamb. And Lord Jesus, I pray that You will impact us and stir us in such a way that we will recognize the righteousness You have given. And that we, Lord, that we would walk among the transgressors knowing ourselves that we have been saved, that we would walk with this mighty truth. And come what may, Father, that we will speak the truth of the Gospel of Jesus everywhere we go. In the meantime, Lord, keep praying for us. We need You, Jesus. And in Your precious name we pray tonight. Amen.